CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 25 Universities between authorization and autonomy If you have spent some years at the university you might share the same observation On the one hand, universities struggle with a tremendous number of challenges, be it the pandemic, the digitalization, political pressure or various internal conflicts resulting from rigid hierarchies or the lack of resources. Sometimes it's also just petty competition among faculties and professors that can be really challenging. On the other hand, for many centuries, universities have offered people a home to produce and share knowledge a fascinating place where you can think and speak freely and a driver for societal change and cooperation. Today, universities are part of a competitive global system. They are forced to succumb to market logics, while at the same time they are rooted in traditions and national myths that seem to be incompatible with today's thinking and needs. Do we need to worry about the developments of universities in Europe, particularly in Central Europe? Where is their institutional autonomy under threat? And what needs to be done to improve their resilience? Welcome to our podcast series, Central uh, Europe Explained. My name is Daniela Apeiden. I am a research associate at the IDM and I'm hosting today's episode on the issue of university autonomy in the region. Today, we have the exceptional chance to welcoming a renowned guest. Michael Ignatiev is a writer, historian, professor, and a former politician, all in one. And it's an honor having you here today, Professor Ignatiev. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So for most of our listeners, I do not need to introduce you. However, I would like to emphasize a few steps of your career. Uh, you were born in Canada, obtained a PhD in history from Harvard University. You started your career in academia, but you also gained practice in journalism and politics. Between 2006 and 2011, you have served as an MP in the Parliament of Canada and then as leader of the Liberal Party of Canada and leader of the official opposition. Until recently, you were the rector and president of Central European University, CEU, in Budapest, and stepped down at the end of July 2021 um, to stay as a professor in the history department. And I recommend at this point our listeners uh, your website um, to learn more about your biography, but also to dive into some of your writings that you display there. Let's dive directly into today's topic. In 2018, you edited a book entitled Academic Freedom, the Global Challenge, in which you collect reports and thoughts on the state of academic freedom worldwide. Uh, one of the well-known cases, uh, the CEU, um, or the dispute between the CEU and the Hungarian government in 2017, um, is, is pretty well known, and uh, it led to the resettlement of the university or most of the university um, to Vienna. Back then, as a rector, you were um, directly in the front line of this conflict. But the so-called Lex CEU is only one example, as I see, of the far-reaching development uh, in the higher education system of Hungary. So now, with um, some months of distance um, from, this, from this previous function, 
what would you say what lessons learned um, did you draw from this case? How did this experiences shape your understanding of, of current challenges for universities uh, in Hungary, but also maybe in the region? Well, thanks for the question. I, I think it teaches me that academic freedom is vulnerable everywhere. Um, to the degree that universities depend on governments and government sanction um, and changes in government regulation, their capacity to act autonomously and teach freely is always in a state of suspension, uh, even in societies with established liberal democratic rules. Um, but the Hungarian case is, I think, a case where you see the consequences a university can pay when the rule of law um, begins to collapse in an EU member state. Because here was a, a case where a government introduced in one week and passed in one week through, through Parliament a regulation which essentially made it impossible for us to operate in a country where we'd been operating for 30 years. And One of the key features of the collapse of rule of law is that we had no right of appeal except to the European Court of Justice outside of Hungary. The European Court of Justice is a great institution and has done whatever it can to defend academic freedom, the rule of law in Europe, but its judgments and the European Court of Justice ruled that the Hungarian action was entirely illegal under European law, but the judgment came too late. Um, it came once we had been forced to um, reestablish ourselves in, in Austria. So this was a case of justice delayed is justice denied. So the conclusion I draw, therefore, as well, is that um, academic freedom and university autonomy is, is vulnerable in Europe because uh, European-wide Uh, sanctions, European-wide responses are extremely weak. And if I could just add one further thought to that, I, I think um, your listeners may not be aware that because education is a sovereign prerogative of nation states, and because most of the EU treaty law is commercial law, there isn't actually a very robust, clear, and unequivocal statement of the principles of academic freedom for researchers. And Uh, university autonomy for institutions in European law. So um, the very structure of Europe is weak in terms of academic freedom, institutional autonomy. And so these are matters of concerns. And those are the lessons I draw from our experience. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Very interesting. Yeah, this European dimension, of course, is also very important for us um, to understand that this is not just a Hungarian exception. Uh, or an exceptional case, but this is uh, showing neglected processes within within Europe or whole European Union. Um, in the two years of the pandemic up to now, we have observed a worrying decay of trust in science as well. Um, in addition, we experience a loss of confidence in democratic institutions, political parties. Um, universities often depict themselves as being isolated from politics and as victims of these developments as well. But I was wondering if, if, if we think it or approach it self-critically, 
how universities have, might have also contributed to the situation. So what, what wrong, wrong directions in the higher education sector have been taken uh, in your perspective? Well, I, I, I think uh, let's flip the question around and emphasize the positive. Where did the vaccines come from? The vaccines came from research labs in universities across Europe. Some of the basic science behind the RNA, some of the basic science behind the Oxford vaccine, um, AstraZeneca's vaccine, were developed in university labs. And the, the science that is guiding us through the pandemic is mostly generated inside the university. So the university has been in the front line of this battle against the pandemic. And most of what the universities have done is a source of immense pride to me. I mean, if I look at the way in which Oxford University pioneered with AstraZeneca to develop, not only develop the vaccine, but develop it in such a way that it would be distributed and sold without, without uh, at cost to developing countries. I mean, that's just an outstanding example of universities leading from the front. Um, the second part of your question is about the kind of reaction against science. And I think there has been um, a lot, uh, universities have been surprised by the vehemence and anger with which ordinary citizens have attacked, you know, so-called experts telling them what to do. Um, and I, I think that that's to be expected. Um, very serious restrictions on personal liberty are being authorized on the basis of scientific evidence prepared in universities. And so we shouldn't be surprised if universities and their experts are being criticized in street demonstrations. That's democracy. And I actually think that um, it's good for universities and experts to be aware that their claims will be scrutinized, criticized, rejected, um, uh, by by uh, people in the street. Uh, it, our, what, what universities need to understand and experts need to understand, and we have to understand is if you have a PhD in a specific discipline, you acquire a certain kind of authority. Well, in a democracy, authority should be questioned and challenged. I think uh, the third part of this is that by and large across Europe, the percentage of people who support and agree with what the experts tell them is overwhelming. It's 75 to 80%, but there are 20% of the population is uh, hostile to vaccines, hostile to experts, feels democracy is not working, and that's also democracy. And um, the particular feature of this, which is worrying, is that those who don't get vaccinated then impose risks on other people. And that's a very serious matter. But that can only, again, be resolved democratic. I would be appalled if we put people in jail over this. I mean, I, the, we have to talk it through. And by and large, as we talk it through, um, people are coming to agree that the scientific evidence has been the only reliable guide that we can have through this awful, awful situation. Mm. But this, this surprise that you mentioned, I mean, also might be a result of a too much inward perspective of, of academia for, for the last decades. Yeah, I think there's a, always a danger that the ivory tower, as we call it in English, retreats from society, starts talking its own closed language games, 
forgets its obligations to the public. These obligations are very clear. I mean, most universities in Europe are paid for by the taxpayer. So the, the responsibility is, is actually fiduciary. It's, it's, fisc it's, it's economic. And then there's a moral and political one. I mean, I, knowledge is, is we create knowledge uh, to help our societies. That's what we do. And, and we also do something else, which is we credential knowledge. We assess which knowledge is true and which knowledge is false. And that's a very controversial function. People don't want to be told that their ideas are false. But that's our job. That's, that's what we use the authority for, to say, this claim about vaccines is false. This one is true. This vaccine works. This one doesn't. That's what universities and university training are supposed to do. We can't run a society unless there is um, the authority of science, but also democratic contestation of that authority at the same time. And that's the balance we're trying to maintain as we go through this crisis. Universities have, of course, the function of knowledge production and also of, of this um, showing what is what is correct, what is not, what is, but also European and also Central European universities have had other functions in the past to, to look a bit in, in the past as well. So, for example, the nation building, uh, the role as nation building was, was very important, uh, especially in, in Central Europe. And I would like to go a little bit in this direction and um, talk a bit about these myths and tra traditions of Central European universities. Is there such a thing like um, like myth building, like nation building, have we completely left this behind us? Or is this still an issue that universities should, should think uh, self-critically? Well, universities in Central Europe, the first thing to say about them is that they're very old. Uh, Jagiellonian University in, in Poland, I think in Krakow, the Charles University in uh, Prague, um, Zeged University, Pech University, the provincial universities in Hungary are, you know, 700 years old. Um, so that's the first thing to say. They've had traditions that go back before the modern nation state. Um, they have traditions established during empires. And they also had to undergo um, communist nationalization after 1945, which had an almost uniformly destructive effect, except in the natural sciences. Um, and so they've had a very particular uh, trajectory in, in Europe as a, as a whole. And you're right, I think in the 19th and 20th century, they had an important role in forming the nation. That is, um, university philologists, linguists, um, and teachers um, help to create the, the national languages of a place like Hungary. Uh, you know, in, in Hungary and Budapest in 1800, the lingua franca was German. And, you know, by 1910, the lingua franca is Hungarian and Hungarian languages. Um, the beauty and power of the Hungarian language owes a lot to university philology and, and science. And, this is a very, actually a very glorious tradition. Um, needless to say, um, any 
development of national pride through university education has its dangers and Hungarian nationalism, Czech nationalism, Polish nationalism has had very, very dangerous uh, consequences. I won't go into the story about the German speaking lands where it often took a, it actually took a catastrophic turn, but that's for another day. Um, at the same time, it's important to remember that <clears throat> within these universities, there were always proud patriots who resisted the nationalist tide in these countries and often had to pay the price in expatriation and exile. So it's a mixed, um, it's a mixed picture. And I, I think that universities have always had the function of training their national elites. I mean, that's what they've been doing for 700 years. And today the training is much more in uh, technical competence uh, than it is in national affirmation. I mean, the university where I teach, Central European University, has been very proud about teaching the elites of countries all over the world, but precisely because we're multinational, multicultural, we can't teach one national doctrine. All we can teach is respect for knowledge, respect for professional confidence, and respect for a discipline. And we teach that to people from 120 countries so that the globalization, the Europeanization of education in the, in the post-89 period has been, has changed the relationship of the university to nation forming because we're, you know, CU for one thing is not forming anybody's nation because we speak to 120. And I'm sure at the University of Vienna and, and uh, you know, the great German universities, um, the internationalization of the student body means that these are not, you know, people don't get lessons in patriotism in these classes. And that then produces a certain backlash. There are certain people on the conservative side of the political spectrum who say that our universities are no longer engaged as they should be in the formation of patriots. Well, we just don't anymore. Um, we teach on the on the other hand, to understand nationalism and to understand patriotism um, to the degree that we have a, a moral feeling about nationalism and patriotism. We talk about the dangers of both, but you know, I'm a Canadian and I would be proud to be called a Canadian patriot. You know, I think, I think these attachment to your land and country and language are extremely important. And, uh, so the idea that universities are the enemy of the patriotic attachment, enemy of nationalism, is false. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some time ago, I discovered um, an interesting study by uh, Lukas Fasora and uh, Jiji Janos um, on myths and traditions of Central European university culture. Mm -hmm. And authors argue that the post-communist countries in Central Eastern Europe struggle with the contradictions of the Humboldtian uh, ideals of this unity of teaching and research, of course, all, also glorified a bit, uh, um, but this ideal of Bildung uh, uh, in German and, and the so-called academic capitalism, uh, which, which uh, needs this diversification and has the keyword of employability in, in students. And yeah. do you also see there, there this, this, this conflict or this contradiction that, that is also creating problems? Oh, I, I think it's not, I think the con 
conflict between the Humboldtian ideal and the modern 21st century university is felt everywhere. Um, I was just reading last night a, um, a defense of humanities teaching at in American universities in which the defenders of you know great books teaching were um, condemning the high degrees of specialization, scientific specialization in other parts of the university and saying, you know, the scientific specialists or the barbarians are going to destroy the Humboldtian, you know, unity of, of uh, but I think all that's just goes with the territory. I mean, universities are not fixed places. Um, Humboldt put together the idea of the German university almost 200 years ago, and it still is inspiring to many, but the universities now has to accommodate many, many um, new um, developments. And I think the thing to remember is, is inside the university, we're debating this all the time. I'm firmly, for example, just speaking of myself, on the Humboldtian humanities tradition. I, I am a not a specialist. I teach, I'm a historian by training, but my courses are rather broad and large. But I work with those whose idea of history is very scientific, very focused, very, you know. Now, and then in, you know, political science and other places, the, the, the quantitative revolution has transformed these disciplines. So the, the inside of a university is a huge debate about these questions. And when a university is <clears throat> alive and doing really well, it, we're all arguing with each other. We're, you know, the, the, that's a sign of intellectual vitality in a university, not a university is dead when that argument is over. <laughs> so um, speaking or coming back a bit to, to the autonomy, is it also then uh, the, to have the autonomy and the freedom to this negotiation processes and not being influenced by by politics to to get on one side let's to focus only on, on employability for example and only on the national role of uh, educating the elite or producing elite well <clears throat> i think it's very important to care about employability i mean i i just think it's irresponsible for a university to turn out vast numbers of phds for markets that no longer exist. I think it's appropriate for universities to say, no, wait a minute, let's cut back our PhD program because nobody in history can get a job. I mean, fine. So that's one thing. But it, on the other hand, I think it's a, a serious mistake for universities to say, okay, what do employers need? Let's design the course to you know, train them in the skills they need. No, universities have to be Uh, follow their discipline. They have to decide what is it about history, which is my discipline, must we teach our students, period. And then we hope that, because we believe this, that a good training in history will train people to be good uh, diplomats, good civil servants, um, good, um, they'll have to get another degree, but good, you know, care workers. I mean, history can do lots of things, but we shouldn't anticipate what we should anticipate the state of the market, the labor market, but we should not be serving the interests of employers. I think, and that's a debate we, we 
we have a lot. The other question you raise is whether universities should allow themselves to be politicized. And universities are constantly politicized. I mean, universities are part of a society. So the gusts of political partisanship that sweep through any workplace will sweep through ours and they affect our disciplines uh, markedly. I mean, just to take my discipline, I mean, 30 years ago, we were not talking uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world about racism. We were not talking about empire and decolonization. And we were not talking as much as we could have been about gender. Well, race, empire, nation, are, and colonialism are now at the center of what university history departments think about. And that's a good thing, provided that we do it in a scientific way. That is provided we do a serious study of empire, um, the British empire, the American empire, the German empire, the you know Austro-Hungarian empire, um, and try and free the evaluation, a historical evaluation of, of empire from ideological party pre, so that we decide in advance, you know, empire is bad, therefore the German empire must be bad in Africa, the Austro-Hungarian empire must be bad. Instead, look at what these forms of authority and domination did. And when we do that, we, we get a, a very complicated picture. So this is just the struggle to maintain intellectual honesty. You know, that that's what this is about. So I'm saying two things. I'm saying, of course, history is affected by um, these currents of opinion that sweep through society. Then our job is to say, okay, fine. Thank you very much. Let's look at the evidence and then try and teach that evidence to our students. And shortly coming back to, to your role as, as a rector and uh, in, in the case of, of CU, uh, and to the beginning question or the first question we had about uh, um, this, this denied justice or yeah, delayed justice, uh, what would be your recommendations or, or wishes, because we are approaching Christmas, um, your, your wishes to Santa um, or to the EU, um, how to strengthen the, the resilience of, of universities uh, in, in the region or in, in whole Europe. What would need to happen in terms of Europeanization? Well, first of all, I would, I would direct my Christmas wishes to fellow rectors and university presidents and ask them to remember that universities are older than the nation states that they serve. Um, they're among the oldest self-governing institutions in Europe. I mean, Bologna, Sorbonne, Oxford, uh, Salamanca, Jagiellonian, uh, Charles, Pech. The greatness of the universities is, is this long-standing historical tradition of independence and self-rule, the community of scholars. This is one of the greatest traditions of self-government in Europe. And every university president and rector is not a bureaucrat functionary of their given state. They are the carriers of this tradition of independence. And so the people who will defend the independence and autonomy of universities are university rectors and presidents who get up every morning and deal with government. 
and every morning deal with donors and every morning deal with politicized faculty and they have to hold a steady course. And the thing to remember is we've been around for a thousand years and we're gonna be around for another thousand years and we need to stand up and defend ourselves and fight back when people push agendas on us and push budget cuts on us and push changes to how we govern that are not in the interests of our faculty or students. So that's the first thing. We need to defend ourselves and speak up for ourselves. Secondly, I, I do think Europe needs to look at the legal structure of academic freedom and institutional autonomy in Europe and, and possibly do some legal work to strengthen the um, defenses of academic freedom and institutional autonomy across the 27 member states. Uh, it'll take a while, it's very difficult because each of these countries have different university statutes, but surely it's possible to come out with a declaration with force of law that makes it impossible for a member state to do what Viktor Orban did to us. I mean, I just think that ought to be out of the question. Uh, it's also what, let me add, what Lukashenko did in Belarus to another university in the 1990s, although he's not in the EU. So, um, and I think if we strengthen the institutional legal architecture of academic freedom, institutional autonomy, that would then help my hard pressed rectors and presidents to do their job, which is to defend the long historical tradition of independence and academic freedom, which has, I think, produced some of Europe's greatest scientific and cultural achievements. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, this perspective of history, this long-term perspective can, can be helpful or consoling in this yeah. regard. Um, usually we uh, ask our uh, guests in the podcast at the end, um, to give our listeners and us a kind of a cultural recommendation or input um, on the topic or related topic. Like, uh, can you recommend any piece of art, literature, movie, music piece, whatsoever that, that we could uh, get inspired from? Well, off the top of my head, because I was a fellow of King's College, Cambridge, uh, I would recommend uh, that we listen to the King's College Choir, uh, its famous Christmas service. I do so because this symbolizes better than anything I can say just how long universities have been part and at the center of European culture. So that would be my recommendation. Thank you very much. We will check that out. So thank you very much for, for this inspiring discussion on um, university autonomy. Thank you, it was a pleasure. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also, have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e.hontoberry at idm.at The email is in the description below. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe.
powered by Ethergroup, with the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek, and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institut für die Danube Region und Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.